Okay, here we are. Whoops, I start out by dropping the holy dry erase marker. It is June the 23rd, 2013. Lecture discussion number 114 on the book of Romans and other related directly passages, if you will. And so if you, this is the first lecture you have uh, ever heard on the internet or attended here, uh, then you're missing the other 113. So what could possibly go wrong, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm in another fine mess, you know, the another fine mess I've gotten myself into Ollie. That, that dates me, you have to know who that really is. But um, uh, it's the whole, when one finds oneself at the bottom of a deep ravine or pit or hole or whatever, it's advisable to resist further digging. Now, that's not me, I just go get heavy equipment if I'm down there and see what else I can do, and that's what I've done. I've ignored that advice, and uh, uh, and that's pretty much where we find our little band of travelers now. I have successfully uh, led us into lecture uh, abyss, to lack of a better term. Uh, that's my attempt to solve the technical problems uh, and such that we had on June the 9th, and what has resulted um, now the past two weeks is a carnage of undecipherable, unconnected pile of stuff. Um, which has pretty much left everybody confused. And I, uh, I know that. Usually I like making you confused, but I like doing it on purpose. And I haven't done it on purpose. So in line with that old uh, other adage that says, if at first you don't succeed, use more explosives. Uh, I'm going to see if I can blast myself clear of the gravitational pull of the planet. What is he really talking about? I love that commercial about Planet Stupid. Have you heard that? You're orbiting Planet Stupid, and the gravitational pull of Planet Stupid is really strong, and you have to try to get yourself away from Planet Stupid, but it's sucking you in, and you're about to crash and burn into Planet Stupid. I, that, that guy uh, got that really well done, uh, and he is speaking about economic decision-making, but it could uh, definitely refer to theological um, uh, belief system. So anyway, to return to normalcy, uh, I'm going to try to get, get us out of here. And do not assume, however, do not, do not, do not assume that uh, that uh, our normal is normal, normal. Okay, how did we get here? How did we get here? Do anybody remember? We got here because of Romans 5:12. That is how we're here. We're at First Kings. I'm sorry, Second Kings one and two. Romans five twelve sends us to Second Kings Rome uh, one and two. And you wouldn't think so, because Second Kings one, chapter one and chapter two is about Elijah and Elisha, and those are two amazing figures in the Bible. Remember, all of the Old Testament has one purpose, and that is to testify of Jesus Christ. He's on every single page. And Elijah and Elisha do that in a beautiful way. These are, I can't say this enough, these are actual people that really lived, that actually did what is recorded of them doing. But God, uh, being who he is, omniscient, omnipresent. Uh, by the way, i got to really, I'll throw this in there really fast. I got a letter from uh, Kathleen in California asking me about the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. She went to a church where she asked the pastor, if uh, uh, God is in hell, does he still love the people that are there? He, you have to define omnipresence and infinity. Is the lake of fire infinite? 
No, it's a created entity. So it's finite. God is infinite. So which one's bigger, the lake of fire or infinity? Well, there you go. Now you're. In, what does omnipresence mean? It means he is everywhere at all times. What is omniscience? He knows everything at all times. Does he know what is going on with a finite group of people? Nonetheless, a huge amount of people that are in the lake of fire at the end of the age after the great white throne judgment. But does he know that they're there? Yes. Does he know what they're thinking? He's omniscient. Does he still love them? He weeps for them every day. All day. So there you go, Kathleen. Anyway, Romans 5.12 sent us to 2 Kings 1 and 2, which is this amazing typological um, uh, passage in the Old Testament. All of them are this way. Elijah and Elisha. Uh, in fact, Elisha does testify prominently of the omniscience of Jesus Christ more so than anything else. He declares that Christ is omniscient God. But Elijah is also an incredible figure as well. And together they make up this magnificent uh, uh Revelation of Christ that is in First and Second uh, chapters one and two of Second Kings. So Romans five twelve, if you remember, if you were here in the other hundred and thirteen lectures, okay, the last maybe twenty five. Romans five twelve is about how sin and death got to humanity. In fact, the whole world, the physical created world. It's about the continuity of germ plasm, the biological fact of the continuity of germplasm, which is, as you know, I hope you know, most of you know, that is about the morogenic factor being transferred by the male to the, uh, through the sperm to the ovum and therefore causing death uh, in every human being. Romans 5.12 begins the explanation of that, or in fact does explain it. And so it's also, because it is about the continuity of germplasm and the transference, if you will, physically and biologically of the mortogenic factor, the death factor, it's therefore also about the virgin birth and the resurrection, the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, if you want to think of it this way, think virgin birth and resurrection, um, if you prefer. But both of those are really about the uncontaminated somatic cell structure. Those are uncontaminated somatic cell subjects versus contaminated somatic cells. Every one of us, all of us, have contaminated somite cells. Christ did not. He was the one, the only one, that did not. Romans 5.12 is about that, and that means that 2 Kings 1 and 2 must also be about that. It must be about the virgin birth and the body resurrection of Christ, and it is. To recap this a little bit, the virgin birth proves that Jesus Christ is God himself and sinless, because only God could be born in this way or put this process together and have it work. So it, the, the very fact that it existed, and by the way, when the people wrote it, nobody had ever heard of a virgin birth. No one had ever conceived of a virgin birth. How in the world did these guys get together and write it down? Because only, not only did they write it down in Romans 5.12 and all through the uh, New Testament, but they also wrote it down in Genesis. But Moses wrote it and Isaiah wrote it. So the concept was foreign, but yet it was included in Scripture before anyone even thought it was possible. The virgin birth proves that that's Christ. 
that he, God is the infant child, and God is the father of the infant child simultaneously. That's the purpose of it. That's one of the things, the why and the how of it. But it proves that Jesus Christ is God himself and sinless, which means that Christ does not have death. We have death. I have death. I look at my face now, and that is frightening. You know, I have to first, I look, when I go to look at my face, I have to make sure there's no small children or horses anywhere near so that they don't stampede and run screaming. I have all these marks now. What do they call them? It's not dirt. Age spots. And I got something under this eye, or I can't remember which eye it is. I try not to look very often. The one eye has got this blotchy red thing now. I have death. It's coming. I can see the door now. That's the way it is. Christ did not have death. Last week I talked about Adam death and Abel death. Do you remember that? Let me explain Adam death. Christ doesn't have Adam death and he does not have Abel death. We have both, or we're subject to both. He was subject to neither, is subject to neither. Why doesn't he have either one of these? Because he's God. Duh. He's life himself. Adam death is the slow death process I just described by looking in the mirror. Every day I look in the mirror, every day I see increasing death. Nothing I can do about it. That's Adam death. Abel death is an outside force. Adam was the first man to die physically or to have the mortogenic factor in him. Abel was the first man to be murdered or killed by an outside force. Okay, So I have violent death, if you will, and I have decay death, whichever way you want to describe it. But Adam death and Abel death does a good job of it. Christ was subject to neither, is subject to neither, neither. He has no death. So therefore, for Christ to die, what he has to do, because he can't be killed and he can't decay naturally and die, in order for him to die, and he has a death process or a blood process, a sacrificial substitutionary death for death, because we're dying and we need to be saved, someone has to die for us so that we can be saved. And he's the only one who has the capacity to die for more than one for one. That's important. Adam could have died, right? He could have died in place of the woman, and she would have been saved for how long? That's right, 20 minutes. She would have ran right back into the, to the tree and killed herself again. So he could have done that, but there was no solution to her repeat offense or recidivism, right? Christ, however, can die not for just one. He can die for all. And it is permanent. That's what makes him God. See, that's why he has to be God in order for the salvation system to work. If you get that down, you're on your way. So Christ can't be killed. He can't have his life taken from him. Uh, he can't. He won't die naturally. So the only way for him to die is to give his life. Abel's life is taken. Okay? Christ's life has to be given. And he's the only one that can do that. Now you begin to see the grace aspect of salvation. Salvation must be given to us. I was saying earlier to somebody, I think it's uh, Supper Dave, I, I really wish that when we're in the New Testament that we wouldn't have Jesus Christ there in the translations of the original Greek and Hebrew, especially the Greek, mostly. I wish it said what his name really is. What does his name mean in English? It means salvation. 
I wish everywhere where we read Jesus, we would read the word salvation. Everywhere where we read Christ, we would read the word anointed or Messiah. And, and so we've turned Jesus Christ, I was saying today, uh, we've turned it into almost like Fred Smith. We think it's a name. We don't have any idea the real meaning of it anymore. In fact, it's become a, a, it's become a curse word in our modern society, which I find... No, I, no, I cannot imagine somebody hits their hand with a, with, a, with a hammer and they scream out, Salvation! But that's what I would want them to do. I think that would work. I don't think they would get the same effect. But again, Christ must give his life himself. It cannot be taken from him, nor does his body decay. And he says that. He says, I, I can lay my life down. I can take it up again. I can lay it down. I can take it up. I can lay it down. I can do this all day if I need to. I can do it every day. You can't kill him. He must give his life up, and his body will never decay. So, he has no sin and he has omnipotence, which means he is God and he has all the power. So hopefully you remember that from last Sunday and previous Sundays. And therefore the virgin birth, sorry, the virgin birth proves the body resurrection of Christ because the virgin birth proves that he has no sin. So if he has no sin, what happens to the body after he takes or gives his own life away? What happens to it? Okay. Therefore, the virgin birth proves the body resurrection, and the body resurrection, by the way, proves the virgin birth. Both uh, both prove that Jesus Christ is Creator, God Himself in the flesh. He is the God Man, the Jesus God. Those words are all the same, if you will. They're all one word. I'll capitalize man. I did this last week, but those are one word. They're not God, comma man, or. Jesus, comma, God, or the other one that you'll find in Acts 11 is Him, God. They're all one word. God, man, Jesus, God, Him, God. God, always God, never not God. Okay? So, Acts 2, Acts 11. So, to repeat one more time, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ cannot be separated from the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is different than our resurrection. And that he resurrects himself. We can't resurrect ourselves. He has to resurrect us. He can give his life, resurrect his life, anytime, every time he wants. He does it once for his purpose. But he made sure you knew that he had the power to do it whatever, whenever and however he wished. And the person who has that kind of power is only God. So he is God. So, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ are all interwoven in such a fashion that you cannot separate any of them from themselves. They're all the same thing, ultimately. They all have the same requirement. It's a foolish uh, foolishness to try to separate them out. In fact, it brings shame upon anyone who does so, the Bible says, which is how we got to Second Kings 2. Shame got us there. Because people were trying to separate the body resurrection, 
the doctrine of the body resurrection from the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, <coughs> excuse me, they were trying to separate out the body resurrection from the picture that is given to them of Christ's uh, death. So you, you just can't. You can't have the birth of Christ and then a, a, an Adam death or an Abel death. You can't have that. The birth of Christ is absolutely unique. The death of Christ absolutely unique because it is a sinless death that he himself controls. And the resurrection of Christ is a sinless resurrection that he himself controls. He also controls, obviously, the virgin birth. He's, he is, as I say, the infant child and the father simultaneously. Okay? It's so it brings shame on those who try to separate them out. And that's how we get to 2 Kings 2. The sons of the prophets of Jericho plead with Elisha. They say, Elisha, we need to search for the body of Elijah. Elijah's body is taken up into heaven. And that is uh, both a picture of the ascension of Christ, but it's also, again, an actual event. He actually was taken up into heaven and witnessed to be so. And But uh, it is also simultaneously teaching us about the person of Christ. So, the sons of the prophets of Jericho, they plead with Elisha. There's 50 of them, by the way. They want to go out and search for the body. They think we can find the body of Elijah. And you can see how that brings shame. You cannot find the body of Christ. Why not? See, I made the leap right to Christ. You can't find the body of Christ. Why not? It's resurrected. It was sinless. It is sinless. It's perfect. It's God. You're not going to find it. It's not here. He's ascended. He's sitting where? On the throne. You can look all over the place. To go looking for the body of Christ, to go looking for the body of Elijah, who is typifying the Christ here, brings shame. And that is one of the great messages of 2 Kings 2. The typology being the doctrine of the body resurrection of Christ, which again is sinless and his deity, his godhood. So, and so now it's impossible to understand 2 Kings 2 without first understanding 2 Kings 1. And so we were forced to begin at 2 Kings 1 as we should, which is especially important because 2 Kings 1, I'm sorry, yeah, 2 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 2, I gotta make a note because I keep making mistakes here and someday Anna will transpose all of this stuff. Long after I'm gone, and I have to fix that for her. Right there. How much is there to transpose, by the way? I did an estimate a while back. I have written, handwritten on yellow and white tablets. I'm probably, I'm well in excess of four million words. Probably at five million. Do I think she'll get it done? No. Not happening. <laughs> I don't care what kind of technological instrument comes to the fore. It isn't happening. Ben uh, has been working, by the way, for those of you on the Internet. It is possible to get uh, transcriptions through Sermon Audio now, and they do a wonderful job, and it's really, really impressive stuff. So. There is possibilities to get this uh, written down and sent to you if you're so interested. But we, it's equally important to, to know 
2 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 2 form a match set. They're a boxed set. Uh, you can't, you've you got to look at both of them together. It's part one and part two. You can't take part two out, forget about part one, and try to think you're going to get part two correctly. Same thing for part one. You won't understand 2 Kings 1 unless you go forward to 2 Kings 2. You certainly won't understand 2 Kings 2 unless, you read, unless you've read 2 Kings 1. It's that simple. The theme of those, of course, are the hypostatic union, which is God adding humanity and the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the themes. Or some would say the first and second comings of Christ, which is slightly less accurate, but I won't argue with it. I'll deal with that next week. Some of them will call it salvation and judgment, and that uh, that's also appropriate. Okay. In any event, 2 Kings 1 emphasizes a few things. Uh, Lots of stuff, but I'm only going to give you enough to get through the day. Look at my new eraser. There is no one here today that I taught that was in high school. But as you know, I used to pitch. I was really, I had really good form, and I threw a pretty good breaking ball, three-quarter arm, and I could get that thing to come in right to left, and, and I was very good. And I had a small, tiny eraser all the time, this one. When I looked at it, and I would, it was a chalkboard. How old is he? I know you're wanting to know. It was a chalkboard. So I would erase the board like this. Then I would grab the chalk, and I would rub it on the eraser, and then I would throw it at the students. And I would hit them consistently. I was very good at it. I, I, I'm not bragging. Find one. Ask them. Not only would I hit them in the forehead, but the chalk would just cover them in their and their neighbors. It was fantastic fun. I really regret not doing it anymore. Have I done it in church? Yes, I have. I have done it. Um, but I now have, look at the size of this baby right there. That is really cool. For those of you on the internet, this thing weighs four pounds and it's at least a foot long. It's great. But I was always fascinated because they would be so embarrassed I hit them in the forehead. And why would I aim for the forehead? Well, of course, to get the maximum collateral damage. And uh, But they would always do the same thing. It stunned me. They would pick up the eraser and they would bring it back to me. And what would I do? Yes, I would fill it up with chalk and throw it again. And I used to always tell them, what makes you reload the teacher? And, of course, obviously, I had 20 more erasers in the drawer all ready to go. So if they kept it, I was prepared. But it takes time to get one properly conditioned for its maximum effect. Okay. Anyway, just a wonderful eraser. So let's write this down. Second uh, Kings 1 emphasizes a couple of things. So I'm just going to give the come down. That is come down, very important, and you'll see quickly or now some translate. So you have come down now, come down quickly. That's amazing that somebody would say that. And then Second Kings two emphasizes go up, old bald head. And I said a few weeks ago, it has nothing to do with baldness. Nothing to do with it. And so you get those two down and you begin to unravel what's going on with respect to uh, 
Second Kings 1 and 2 and the prophecy that is there and the deep meaning that is there. And obviously those two phrases come down now or come down quickly or come down and go up old Bob, bald head. They have a, a complex connection and relationship. And hopefully you've begun to work your, uh, through them already and you've figured it out. I know some of you have, and, uh, and I'm really excited for you because if you can figure this, this, this one out, then you are well on your way to getting the entire Old Testament. And that is a very exciting place to be, especially this time in history. So we're going to take another run at the mystery of the two female bears. If you weren't here, if you haven't been here, at the end of uh, Elisha, which is Second Kings 2, two bears come out, two female bears come out and kill 42 people. And that's a mystery that very, that is hard to solve, but it, uh, uh, well, it isn't hard to solve. It's really pretty clean and obvious, but um, for some reason it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get solved very often. So we're going to begin again with Elijah, or Elijah, and then we'll get to Elisha. And we need to reread just a little bit of 1 Kings 1 to refresh, uh, because we have these things happening there. If you remember, I have the king, uh, who is an apostate king, or if you will, a pagan king, uh, he falls down and, and he um, is worried about dying and he wants to know if he will recover. And so he sends out uh, people to inquire of his pagan god, which is Baal Zebub, or Baal Zebub, you might hear it called, but it's really Baal Zebub. Baal Zebub is a uh, kind of a humorous attempt at it. Uh, we'll get to that in the future. So he has fallen and he obviously is hurt badly. And he wants to know if he's going to survive. He sends people out to find out. And he wants to, Baal Zebub to tell him. And, of course, there is no Baal Zebub. He doesn't exist. But uh, nonetheless, that doesn't stop people from worshiping inanimate things. Uh, he's worshiping a rock. And uh, that, by the way, that inquiry of Baal Zebub uh, causes the prophet Elijah to say this all throughout uh, uh, that area. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you inquire of Baal Zebub? In other words, because you don't know God of Israel, or you don't think God is in Israel, back we are to omnipresence, aren't we? Is God in Israel? He can't help but be in Israel. He's omnipresent, and it is His, it is his chosen people. Okay? There's a connection for those of you who want to get ahead of the class. You can go to 2 Kings 8 9, where I have another king that asks uh, Elisha, shall I recover from this disease? So one king, we're, we're now talking about the first king, he wants to know if he's going to recover from the fall so that he had. So let's go to 2 Kings, um, uh, 2 Kings 2, chapter 1 again, and knock out a, a few... Uh, few uh, Verses here to get everybody back on the bus. So I'll start at 7. You now know about the uh, the fall of the king. You know about the inquiry. And we're picking it up, if you will, at verse 7. Then he said to him, What kind of man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? Those words were, Are you inquiring of Baal's above because you don't think God is anywhere near Israel? And so the king said, what kind of man said that to you? And his, the people that he sent out said, they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. Okay? And the king said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. And you can be sure he's afraid now. And, he, and then the king sent to him a captain 
of 50 with his 50 men. In other words, he responds to uh, Elijah's comment or Elijah's declaration uh, or question is, uh, are you inquiring because there is no God in Israel? He responds to that with 50 men and a captain. And so the captain goes up to Elijah and there he was sitting on the top of a hill and he spoke to him, man of God, come down. And Elijah answers, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. So he's put a proposition on the table. You want me to come down? You called me a man of God? If I am a man of God, I'm not coming down. Fire's coming down. And you're going to burn. We're going to find out really quick here what if Elijah is a man of God. What does man of God mean in that context? And fire came down from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50 men. Then the king sent to Elijah another captain of 50 with his 50 men. How would you like to be the second captain? And he answered and said to him, Man of God, thus the king said. Ah, Nice move, really. Always appreciated these captains. The first one, clearly as dumb as a bag of rocks. Second one goes, Thus the king said, Come down now. So Elijah answered and said to him, Now them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. If I am a man of God, because you've both called me that. And fire, and the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50. Again, the king sends a third captain of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah, the smartest man, as I said last week in all of the Old Testament, one of the smartest, and says, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours We're switching sides. I've watched you blow people up. I believe you're a man of God. I believe God is there. I believe you represent God. I believe you. I'm giving up. I'm falling on my knees. Please take these servants. We're all in agreement here. We had a vote. We're all switching sides. Here's our uniform. Take what you got to take. We're now on your side. We've seen the fire. We're going with the fire. The other guys obviously feared the king, didn't they? More than they feared Elijah. Because if they went back to the king, what would the king have done to them if they had returned with him? See, they were afraid. So what are you more afraid of? God or a king? That, by the way, is the lesson of the book of Revelation, is it not? Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50 with their 50s. But let my life now be precious in your sight. 
Okay, what an intelligent man. Obviously, I omitted a lot of very key pieces today because of the time, but, but for now, just focus on these three. A man of God, the king has said to come down. And that's what they're saying. Man of God, the king has said, come down. And he responds, if I am a man of God, let fire come down. We're going to prove right now if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. The second captain says, come down quickly. And the third captain says, man of God, let my life be precious in your sight and the life of these 50. So notice immediately a king commands that the man of God come down from his mountain or his hill or whatever. He wants the man of God to come down. He's screaming at him, come down. If the man does not come down, Fire instead in his place comes down and consumes. So now, immediately, the rule is what? Whenever you're reading an Old Testament story, find Christ in the Old Testament story. It's a picture of Christ. The rule is also to find the New Testament complement. So while I'm telling you this again, you're thinking in your head, where is Christ? Where is the New Testament complement? Obviously, Christ is the one... It's a physical manifestation, isn't it? Christ is the one with the fire. Elijah, again, is an actual... This literally happened. These were actual people. This literally happened. They said what they said. What happened, happened. But at the same time, Elijah is a typological portrait of Christ. He's a hidden picture of Christ. In other words, there's a picture of Christ hidden here. And so so he's picturing Christ. So... I'm not going to say man of God. I'm going to say the God-man. Somewhere in the New Testament, somebody is going to say to the man-God or the God-man, the God that has added humanity, Jesus Christ. Somebody is going to order Christ to come down from some place, right? We'll read it in a minute. So that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? Aren't we? By the way, did Christ come down from heaven? Yes. How many times does he come down from heaven? He comes down twice. The first and second comings or the first and second advents, if you will. The first time he comes, it's to bring mercy and salvation. And the second time he comes, he comes to bring fire and end sin. He's going, God is going to end sin. He's not going to let you stay in sin. He's going to stop it. If he doesn't stop it, what does that say about him? Either that he can't stop it or he won't stop it. Both of those mean that he's what? Evil. And he's not. He's always good. But the fire proves, uh, at least the third captain went, that is God. I don't have any doubt about it and I'm falling on my knees, and I'm begging for my life. I believe you're with God. You're representative, associative. God is there. Because that's the point of the fire, right? Twice Elijah is ordered to come down, and twice Elijah sees those words as a what? What's he see, a man? He certainly sees it as a blunt questioning of Elijah's representation of God, doesn't he? 
Because he starts out, if I am a man of God. And you get fire. Because you deserve fire. For what? Ordering me to come down. You don't order Christ to come down. Why not? Come down is immediately seen by Elijah as a mocking insult, questioning the presence of the Creator God. And consuming fire is sent to prove it, to prove something. You see, implied in the order to come down, and this is the key thing. Come down, what's missing? Something missing. He says come down, but he left something out that he knew was implied. Elijah knew was implied. It's the same thing your wife says to you husbands. Come down or else. What's the or else? Come down. I got 50 men. Come down or what? I come up there and I what? I drag you back dead to the king. Because you have insulted my king. He's going to prove that Baal Zebub is more powerful. I need to talk to Baal Zebub. I'm not going to talk to the God of Israel, God of creation. And you said, do you inquire of Baal Zebub because you think there is no God in Israel? There is a God in Israel. And the king says, no, there isn't. There's only Baal Zebub. So we have a battle here. Elijah is famous for those kinds of things, by the way. If you're around Elijah and you're on the side of Baal Zebub, I would recommend the very best asbestos material system that you can find. Because you're going to get burned. That's what happens with him. He calls down fire. He's going to do it again, by the way. Elijah will. That's another lecture. Implied in the order to come down is the or else. Fifty men would attack and kill Elijah. Come down or we come up and kill you. We do not believe that you have power from God or that you're in any way associated with God. And so Elijah proves that he is and says, if I am associated with God, you're going to get smoked. Poof. So now begin to connect that to what in the story of Elisha? I know this is the third part. Some of you have missed the first and second parts. Connect that to the two bears that killed the 42 people. See, that's what we're doing. I'll read that again in a moment, but first we need to find the New Testament complement. Okay, where is the New Testament complement? I'm going to read one place it is. Where does somebody yell at Christ to come down from some place? That's exactly right. If you didn't hear that, uh, Bill, the, Bill the Cow, now we like to call him Scarface, uh, but Bill the Cow is absolutely correct. It's Matthew 27, 39 through 44, where people tell Christ to come down off the cross. If you have to immediately ask yourself, if Christ did in fact come down off the cross, what would happen? A good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. Okay, so I'll read Matthew 27. Um, let me just say this. You always have to look for the prophecy and then the fulfillment. 
otherwise you're not going to come away with any understanding. Know this, God defends his doctrine of salvation. He protects it. He, he protects it. Why? Because he loves people. He, has to, he, he intends to save people. And he wants to save the lost and he will protect his truth of salvation from, from those who want to do what to it? Those who want to destroy his truth of salvation, so what? So that no one is saved. There are people out there that want everybody to perish. They want no one to be saved. They don't want to say, I don't want to be saved, but you go ahead and be saved. No, that's not what they're doing. They're saying, I want no one to be saved. And they're everywhere. And God will protect his truth of salvation from those who seek to destroy and enslave anyone and everyone they, they can catch. So here we have Matthew 27, 39. And those who, who passed by blasphemed him. Christ is giving his life up by his own authority, with his own power. He's in total control of his own crucifixion. And, and those who passed by him while he's on the cross blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Did he come here to save himself? No. What does he come here for? Save you. Me. Your families. Your friends. That's why he's coming. He didn't come to save. Can he save himself? Yeah. It's not the point. If you are the Son of God, I'll put it this way. If you are the man of God, come down. If you are the God-man, come down from the cross. It's almost word for word the same, isn't it? So now you know what Elijah is really about. Underneath. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, if God is in Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Would they believe him if he came down from the cross? No. What would happen if he came down from the cross? Why do they want him to come down from the cross? They don't want anybody to be saved. Exactly the same as the king who, got, who fell, by the way, and sent the two captains that were burned and the third captain who, who was very wise. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the, I am the Son of God. Son of God means Messiah, by the way. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Okay? So here at the crucifixion of Christ, remember, this is the fulfillment. God himself, who cannot be killed, his life cannot be taken, he's got to give it up himself, and that, and he's being mocked now. Something that humans continually engage in, the mocking of God. See Matthew 27, 29. Matthew 26, 68 is more such examples. Mankind is nothing if not consistently hateful towards their Creator who seeks to save them. Anyway, I hope you noticed the come down from the cross. If I got anything to you, I hope you got that. Obviously, this time, no one who said these things had any idea 
who was on the cross. They had no idea that this is the great I am, the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. That's who's on the cross before them. It's not merely a prophet that he had sent. It is God who has sent himself this time. Elijah was a picture of this. This is the real thing now. What's called in theological seminaries and and, and circles as the anti-type. The fulfillment of the type. God sent himself and provided himself. and, And this is the giving of his life. And the giving of his life was fundamental to the saving of the ones in the crowd. Along with all of us and everyone else. And very few, by the way, understood, understood that then, and very few understand it today. It's a magnificent truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Very few, very few, even among those who profess to be believing Christians, understand that Jesus Christ is, the one, is God on the cross. The invisible God making himself visible to his creation. I am constantly bombarded with all kinds of nonsense from all over the world now, about the person of Christ. It goes with my job description. The most common is usually some assertion that Christ is some way inferior to God. He's not inferior. He is. They want there to be a difference between God and Christ, and they tell me so. They tell me all the time, Jesus Christ is inferior to God the Father. No, he's not. They are the same. There is no difference. You're into the doctrine of the triune nature of God. And that's another day. Anyway, I'm digressing into ranting idiot mode. For today, notice the mocking. Notice the reviling. The come down from the cross. Now we go to 2 Kings 2. You should already have solved this. You don't need, I should be able to quit right here, shouldn't I? Just stop. You got it, don't you? You better. How come? Test on Friday. That's right. You flunked the test, what? That's right. Beating. Just like we always do. We say that for the benefit of the visitor. Do you want to, do we all want to point at the visitor now? Maybe hold hands in a circle and a light can shine. We'll hang her upside down. I gave her away. See what's in her purse? A little money. I'm kidding. Not really. Okay. <laughs> That's for the benefit of the internet audience who are very much afraid of me. Yeah. Lindsay was once afraid of me. Not anymore. Now she eats food off of my plate. You cannot imagine how... It's unbelievable how much power I used to have. It's all gone. Okay, we're going back to 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24, the mystery of the two female bears. If 2 Kings 1 is Elijah portraying Jesus Christ, the prophecy of the giving of his life for salvation and therefore the unstoppable resulting resurrection. Do you get that? Once he gives his life, the, the resurrection is unstoppable. There is no possibility but anything but a resurrection because I have the giving of a life that is sinless and not subject to death in any way. No Adam death, no Abel death. Therefore, logically, you may not have that together yet, but logically you will see the resurrection is, 
is unstoppable. It has to occur. And that's key to understand because Christ, again, cannot be killed. And, be, and because Christ must give his own life, then his resurrection uh, is unstoppable. And also uh, is the resurrection of all who are covered with his blood. Likewise, must happen. Basic geometry logic. Resurrection unto life. Death could not, cannot hold him. It's impossible. Same is true for those who choose him. So Elijah, 2 Kings 1, is marinated in the doctrine of the body, resurrection of Jesus Christ, as is Elijah, 2 Kings 2. So now we're going to go there. Uh, 2 Kings 2, 23 and 24. Okay? Then Elisha went up there to Bethel. He finished doing a miracle at Jericho. We'll cover that next week. And as he was going up the road, some soldiers came from the city. How many do you think came? There's two views on this. Some say 50 came. Some say only 42 came. We'll cover both views next week. So your Bible might say youths, but it cannot be youths. So I'll prove that next week. It's soldiers. Came from the city. We got soldiers again and mocked him. We have mocking again and said to him, Go up, old bald head. Or some will have it, Go, he- go up, you bald head. Which I think is more correct. So let me get rid of the old and put the you. Go up, you bald head. Because he wasn't old, was he? So Elisha turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. It's an identical pattern, isn't it? Come down, they get fire. Call him, go up, you bald head, you get cursed. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youth. The language is such that they were killed, 42 of the soldiers. Okay? So go up instead of come down. And the you bald head. Previously, if you remember a couple of lectures back, I pointed out, excuse me, that Elisha is a young man here. He's, he's a young man. And he has a head covering. He's probably 30. So he's not bald. It doesn't have anything to do with literal baldness. You have to figure out what bald head meant to them when they said so. Baldness was a reference in this in this context to someone who was dying of something. Because when you were dying of this, you normally showed that by a baldness. You shaved your head. And the word or the what you were dying of is leprosy. So they're saying, Go up, you leper. Now, what was a leper supposed to do in this culture at this time? Everywhere he went, he's highly contagious. He had to yell out something so that people did not be contaminated with what he had. He's dying of leprosy, and the leprosy of that age is not the same as what's happening in today's uh, um, uh, medical uh, sciences, if you will. Uh, What's that? Molokai um, in Hawaii. I believe there's still a leper colony there. But it's not the same. This leprosy was far different and far more deadly and far more dangerous and far more contaminating and, and uh, far more uh, uh, contagious. And you were to say unclean, scream it out at the top of your lungs everywhere you went so that no one would die from what you had. They could all run from you. Okay. Declare themselves as unclean. Leprosy is a biblical symbol for what in the Bible? It starts out as a very small spot on your 
uh, usually on your body somewhere that can hardly be seen, and then eventually it spreads through to where it even turns your bone enamel contaminated with this disease. It is so uh, permeable, if you will. It just permeates everything that you have, every skin, every everything. And it is a symbol for sin. So they are saying to him, Ascend up, leper. Because Elijah, as you remember, was taken up, literally taken up in a whirlwind, in the Shekinah glory, in the, uh, uh, the Ezekiel 1 uh, uh, cherubim, and uh, the pillar of cloud, if you will. Elijah is literally taken up in the in now they're saying the same thing to him. Go up, leper. Now, begin assembling the pieces and start placing Christ in the prophecy. Actual, literal people and events that supernaturally contain hidden pictures of Christ. You notice me repeating that over and over again because I get it all the time on, uh, in, uh, in mail. I need to make sure I'm emphasizing it. If you are ordering Jesus Christ to come down now, you're ordering him to stop the crucifixion and to save only himself. And so what are you saying? Ultimately, you are demanding that God save no one, aren't you? And that all everybody remains lost in sin forever. And God will not do that. Jesus, God, will, will save all who come to him. Anyone who attempts to stop the plan of salvation is greatly evil. Anyone who says that Christ is not God, that he is not the God-man, is saying that there is no salvation available. Because if Christ isn't the substitute, if he isn't God himself, then there's not enough blood. There's not a, I need infinity. I need blood. I need flesh. I need the ability to sacrifice for a multitude. Infinity may not be correct, by the way. I, I get in that discussion often, so I'll... I'll I'll refrain for a minute. So, anyone who says Christ can be killed by outside forces also is saying that Christ is not God, and therefore there is no salvation. So if he's not God, there's no salvation. If he he can be killed, or or if the Romans killed him, or the Jews killed him, both are incorrect, by the way. But if if you say that, then you're saying again he's not God, and you're saying again there is no salvation. Imagine if the first and second captain said this instead of come down and come down quickly. Imagine they said this. Jesus Christ, come down off the cross where you are giving your life for the salvation of all who come to you or we will stop you ourselves and kill you ourselves. How would God respond to that? The implications of such a statement are astonishingly evil. Jesus, they... Again, they're saying that Jesus is not God himself and that Jesus can be killed and salvation can be stopped. None of that's true. That's what's going on in Elijah and Elisha. Consuming fire consumes great evil. Now, so, wishing for everyone to perish is is actively working in great evil, and God intervenes. Come down, so I'm going to recap here because I'm running, Terry's waving at me. Come down or we will kill you is going to get a response from God. It's going to get fire. 
God intends to save, and he immediately proves it with that third captain, doesn't he? All you have to do is throw yourself at his feet and beg for mercy. He gives it to you every single time. Never an exception. He'll save all who choose to be saved. Now here, imagine somebody is saying this to Elisha. Go ahead and try to resurrect yourself. Try to ascend, if you will, as a sinless sacrifice. But you are filled with sin yourself, you leper. They're mocking him. They are mocking the resurrection of Christ. And they are mocking the sinlessness of Christ. And there we are now back to where? Romans 5.12, which is about the sinlessness of Christ in the virgin birth and the resurrection. If you say that to Christ... He will defend his plan of salvation. In this case, he uh, sent two bears. Jesus Christ will give himself up and he will resurrect himself. Nothing anyone can do to stop it. It's impossible to stop it. Now all that remains is why salt and a new bowl and why two bears? And how many of them were there? Forty-two or fifty? How many think there were 50 that came and eight survivors? I've said that a lot. I've said it, however. It could have been a misdirection. How many think there's only 42? If you think there's only 42, where'd those eight go? Did they see the other 50? Did I have eight guys? I ain't going anywhere near this. What, are you crazy? 42, by the way, is the number for who in the Bible? I said this a few weeks ago. It's the number of the Antichrist. He rules for 42, or the second half of the Great Tribulation, 42 months. So that 42 is going to be an interesting number. Next week, let's rise and be dismissed. And the musicians come forward. Look how fast they are.